This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a collective sigh of relief as the bomb cyclone moves on. But parts of the state still reeling from the snow and fierce winds. We're going to begin our coverage with CPR's Natalia Navarro. Hi, Natalia. Hey, Ryan. Why don't we start with the roads? CDOT still advising people to stay off the highways today. What do we know about like the areas of concern? Well, the roads in Denver are still icy, so CDOT is telling people to drive with care. Uh, CDOT's Tamara Rollison is asking drivers not to travel out of the metro area, though, especially not to the east or to the south. Right now, CDOT's in full deployment. We're using uh, all of our resources to clear the roads as quickly as we can, but it's going to be a while. Our big challenge right now is we have a lot of vehicles and trucks that are stuck along the I-25 corridor. Rollison says they don't expect to be for it to be clear until around this afternoon. Yeah, and we saw these like road rescues yesterday with the governor calling in, I think, the National Guard to help with that. Uh, of course, going into this storm, we were already dealing with a historic avalanche season. Dangerous conditions there. Parts of I-70 in the mountains were hit by slides. What is CDOT doing after this storm? They told me, honestly, that can't be their focus right now. They're working on clearing I-70 to the east and I-25 to the south, and that's really what they can focus on. They're they're not worrying about the avalanches right now. Well, they may be worried, but they have to uh, prioritize at this point. Yes, that's true. Uh, as we've reported, a state patrol corporal was killed while he was helping a motorist who slid off I-76 in Weld County during the storm yesterday. Another driver lost control and hit Corporal Daniel Groves. What can you tell us about him? The state patrol is planning a procession to honor Corporal Groves, but understandably, they're still working out the details. They've placed a black and blue band over their logo on Twitter and Facebook. The chief might may make a statement later today or tomorrow. Um, Governor Polis has ordered all flags lowered to half staff on public buildings across Colorado. He tweeted, Groves was and always will be remembered as a hero. Corporal Groves was 52 52 years old, and um, he had been with the state patrol since 2007. He is survived by his partner of two years. Let's talk about power outages. Have crews been able to get a handle on things? This morning, the state's uh, largest utility, Excel, says somewhere around 85,000 homes are still without power. Uh, That's mostly in the Denver metro area and stretching a bit north. Um, An additional 300 workers have come in from out of state, actually, to help restore the electricity. Um, Spokeswoman Holly Velasquez-Horvath explained why, at the height, some 350,000 people were in the dark. Mostly the high winds. You know, if you can imagine 80 to 90 mile per hour winds, we had poles that had snapped, trees that had flipped over and crashed into electric lines. We had feeders that went out because of the wetness and thickness of the snow. So it was a whole combination of different things that impacted the outages. Already today, more than 600 flights have been canceled at Denver International Airport. What's the outlook for things getting back to normal at DIA. A spokesperson for DIA told me four out of the six runways are now operational. They said that's about uh, regular for normal operations. They had crews out there clearing ice and snow all night. Um, Flights are still... uh, going uh, arriving here in the airport, but they won't be departing till around noon today. 
Um, since there's still a lot of backlog from the cancellations yesterday, there's going to be a bit of delay. Uh, about 75% of the flights yesterday were canceled for, uh, during the storm. Natalia, thanks for the update. Thank you so much, Ryan. Natalia Navarro of CPR News, tracking the impact of that bomb cyclone. You can keep up to date with our radio newscasts online at CPR.org. And a great information and visuals continue on Twitter at CPR News. Okay, so we've learned some new words thanks to this storm, like bomb cyclone, bombogenesis, millibars. They added up to a blizzard that blasted the eastern half of the state. By definition, this was a rare winter storm. So how did it come together? And could we see another like it in our lifetimes? Peter Goebel is a climatologist at Colorado State University. Hi, Peter. Hi there, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, watching this yesterday from the comfort of a studio, uh, this just appeared to be a strong March storm, wind, snow, ice. But from a scientist's point of view, it was very different. The storm officially, of course, of course, reaching a bomb cyclone status. Just in layman's terms, what does that mean? Sure. So a bomb cyclone refers to a certain level of pressure drop over the course of 24 hours. It just happens to be, you mentioned the word millibars. If a storm's central pressure drops by 24 or more millibars, in 24 hours, then it's officially referred to as a bomb cyclone. And that, of course, occurred here. Uh, and that, that process is called bombogenesis. Do I have that right? You do have that right. Okay. I'm going to ask uh, what may strike you as a very naive question. <laughs> when, when we talk about pressure, it's much harder for me to imagine pressure when it comes to the air, you know, I can imagine being a diver and the water pressure weighing down on me. When, when we talk about pressure, what, what, what pressure are we talking about weighing down or not? Yes, of course. That's a wonderful question, and I don't view it as naive at all. Um, and I think you framed it really well, because ostensibly what pressure is, is it's the weight of the column of atmosphere above you from the top of your head to, uh, to space, essentially. And it actually has the same weight as, I believe, about 30 feet of water. So you oftentimes hear divers refer to pressure in terms of atmospheres. So what they're talking about, if they go three atmospheres deep, is that they went as deep as it would allow to increase the pressure that they're under by as much as if you added three atmospheres worth of air above their heads. I have so much more sympathy now for my friends who talk about being susceptible to the pressure in the atmosphere because that has a real physiological effect. Okay, some people have likened this storm to a hurricane just because of the force of the winds. Is that analogy correct? There are some ways in which the storm was a lot like a hurricane and some ways in which the storm was nothing like a hurricane. I would say we can start with just some of the Wind gusts we saw, I believe we had a recorded gust of 96 miles per hour in Colorado Springs. That does hit the low end of what would be considered a Category 2 hurricane wind gust on the uh, Saffir-Simpson scale. And then I believe we saw 80-mile-per-hour gusts at DIA, which, again, would register on the low end of the scale. So in terms of... Uh, wind gusts, 
there are certainly ways we can liken it to a hurricane. Uh, there's also ways we can liken it to a hurricane in terms of how the low pressure developed. I mentioned that low pressure or pressure is basically the weight of the column of air above you. Yeah. So in order to deepen a low pressure system or make the surface pressure lower, you have to find a way to lift a layer of air at the surface and get it to spread out aloft more rapidly than basically it can fill in at the surface or lessen the weight of the column of air above you. One of the most effective ways to do this is if you have a lot of moisture in the storm, when the air is lifted, it releases what's called uh, latent heat of condensation, is how we refer to it. Okay, this is and getting a little heady for me, but I'm trying I'm, I'm to picture sorry. this. Yeah. Okay, and this is similar to yeah. the effect of a, of a hurricane? Yeah, okay. I got off on a little bit of a tangent. That's there, okay. That's well, that you need a lot of moisture in a storm. That's essentially the energy that's driving the storm is the energy that's released when you take that water vapor and condense it into liquid. And we had a moist storm yesterday, so uh, that certainly added to the pressure drop. Okay. Uh, When was the last time something like this happened? And I guess that gives us a sense for whether we'll see it again. Sure. So the pressure drop for Colorado, um, again, is unprecedented, but we had something similar happen in March of 1973. I don't know the exact date offhand, but the... uh, lowest recorded pressure from that storm was at least close to what we saw yesterday. Okay, so that's more than 40 years ago. I suppose it's possible in one's lifetime that you could see this again then. Certainly. Yeah. Was this as bad as you thought? Worse? Not as bad? Yeah, that certainly depends on how you look at it. In terms of pressure, it absolutely lived up to the hype. I think that the pressure drop and the pressures recorded are things that merit a case study, and they're things that people like us climatologists can certainly geek out about for a long time after the storm has passed. Um, In terms of snowfall totals, I think that for the urban corridor, it looked like we were a little bit on the low end of what was forecasted, and in some areas further out east, it was a bit more of a bust. So in the sense of snowfall totals, for several reasons, it maybe didn't quite live up to the hype. All right. Thanks so much for spending time with us, for nerding out with us. I'm, I'm glad you could do that. <laughs> Absolutely. He's Peter Goebel, climatologist at Colorado State University, helping us understand the scale of the bomb cyclone that hit Colorado. He also works with the Community Collaborative Snow Network. That's a group of citizens, statewide volunteers who take weather measurements from their homes. So on my way to work this morning, I noticed a row of cars parked overnight. Some of them had their wipers lifted off the windshield. Others were left down. I'm curious about this phenomenon. I admit that I only do it occasionally. So I asked on Twitter this morning, are you a wipers up or down person? Stacy Nick of Fort Collins says, I'm the kind who sees others do it and says that's a good idea. I should do that and then never does. Aubrey Hill of Denver calls herself an aspiring lifter. Didn't do it as much until this season. Necessity is the mother of invention. Our own digital editor Jim Hill says confidently, I'm a wipers up man. Keep him from freezing to the windshield. But maybe this is a regional thing. 
Twitter user Brenna McEll says, I'd never seen it done before in my life before moving here, originally from Wisconsin. I am anti-lifting wipers. There you have it. The bomb cyclone walloped Colorado's eastern plains at an especially difficult moment. It's the time of year when livestock give birth. There are thousands of newborn cattle, sheep, and horses on ranches and farms in the area. The fierce winds and snow of a blizzard can threaten their lives and the livelihoods of farmers and ranchers. From Fort Morgan, I'm joined by Marlon Eisenach of the CSU Extension Service. Hi, Marlon. Hi, how are you today? Doing well. Glad you made it through the storm. It seems like an obvious question, but an important one. What's the weather like out there this morning, and how bad did it get? Well, it was terrible yesterday with the snow and with the wind visibility. Uh, you know, that truly was a, a blizzard, and uh, it created a lot of problems during the time. As we talk now, the only thing, the sun is trying to come out. Uh, it's not snowing. The wind is still causing some more drifting, so uh, we're not completely away from the the blizzard, but it's a lot better than it was yesterday. Yeah, the visibility really, really reduced. Hard to see just a few feet in front of you. That is so true. Uh, I think, uh, you know, at times I couldn't even see uh, 50 feet in front of me, so uh, it was terrible. Luckily, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the people that were at work and stuff got home uh, before it really happened, but what the real concern is 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 you know the ranchers that have livestock and and you know um, this like you said this is the time that we're doing calving and lambing and and everything like that so uh, you know it's always a, a concern when these kinds of storms arrive. And yeah, that, that's, ranchers, you know they that's what we want to try to understand. Let me just say for scale that you you work in Morgan County in northeastern Colorado and give us a sense of how many animals there are on farms and ranches out there. Okay. Uh, As far as uh, cows, uh, we probably have, uh, uh, beef cows, we probably have around 18,000. And, uh, you know, those cattle that we have in the feedlots uh, for meat production, we have over 200,000 of those. Uh, We have uh, approximately 40,000 milking dairy cows. And then uh, we also have quite a few uh, uh, heifers that are being raised for milk production. So, and that could be, you know, 15, 18,000. So, uh, Morgan County in our largest uh, industry is agriculture. And within that, it's definitely livestock. So it's a very factor. And we, we you know, we have ewes and, and, uh, you know, they're lambing as we speak too. So, you know, it really affected the, the beef cows and the, the ewes that are lambing. Yeah, the concern, I gather, would be for those livestock that are exposed, you know, out on ranches and less sheltered. Uh, what what yes. about a storm like this is so difficult on them? Well, you know, and ranchers, they do the best. They put up uh, windbreaks, uh, you know, and also we plant trees and stuff to protect that. Mm. But when you have the wind that is this strong with the snow, even with protection, you know, if they're calving or newborn calves that are just a few days old, you know, that can go ahead and affect them and that can cause the death loss. Plus, you know, not only that, but, you know, the stress that it puts on livestock at this time, uh, you know, they might linger and, and come down with some sicknesses that, uh, 
you know, can cause some more death loss. So it's uh, it isn't figured just at the, when the storm is over. There's still some uh, things left over from that. So are you still tallying this up? Do you have a sense of what the loss might be? Well, you know, the ranchers are so busy taking care of their livestock. You know, it hasn't been reported. And one thing about it is it's still very difficult to go and talk to ranchers because of the road closures and stuff like that. So yeah. it'll take a few days, but definitely, you know, without a doubt, uh, you know, there are losses that occurred yesterday. And you'll be taking stock of that with the livestock. Uh, we yeah. hear a lot a lot about problems in agriculture these days. You know, many farmers and ranchers living on the financial brink. If many animals die, could could people go broke? I mean, is it make or break in that way? It could be. You know, uh, uh, sometimes, you know, there's some subsidy from the U.S. government, but, uh, uh, you know, usually that is for loans at lower interest, but not directly, uh, you know, given to the producer. So definitely that can cause some problems. We hate to talk about that. And, you know, one thing about it, rancher, former, you know, you're up against weather conditions and stuff. You know, you hope you can weather and continue. But uh, with the prices of commodities and farm commodities and stuff, it's really tough. So you have to appreciate the hard work that these individuals put. They're dedicated to the land and the livestock. They're hard workers. Uh, you know, they work 24-7 as required. And, yeah, I really appreciate those people. And I just want to say there are blizzards all the time on the Eastern Plains. There's a lot of attention on this particular one because of the forces at play. Uh, but this is not... Uh, this is not a new situation for folks in Morgan County. That is so true. Yeah. Would you expect some sort of disaster declaration? Is that something that you might seek as a result of this? Well, you know, that's up uh, with uh, uh, Farm Services, USDA Farm Services. That's not with Extension. But, yeah. you know, if that happens, Extension, you know, is uh, the role from Colorado State University. We work for those individuals and we're here to educate you know the ranchers and the farmers and the people if there's a program available then um, you know we have specialists uh, in our uh, field that you know can help these farmers and then also with the farm services you know they'll definitely help too but uh, you know if there's possibility of any kind of uh, funds available we'll sure get involved as far as extension. Okay, we'll circle back to find out exactly what happened. Is there any good news out of this storm? I, I, I think of the moisture, for instance, and whether that yes. might be of some benefit to crops. Right. Well, you know, before it snowed here in Fort Morgan, yeah. it rained yesterday morning. We had an inch and a half of rain before the snow. So you can never complain about moisture because, you know, we're like a desert out here without, you know, uh, the rain and and definitely uh, you know there's some benefits we can't say but you know uh, what's given to us is out of our control and so um, we we'll just have to deal with what we got but during the time you know it's it's devastating and and you know I believe in cycles it'll happen again it has happened and it's just one of those things that we try to uh, hope that we can prevent. Well, Marlon, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and thanks for being with us. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you also. 
Marlon Eisnock is a livestock agent for the CSU Extension Service. He's based in Morgan County. Before we take a break, a voicemail that we found just irresistible. Here's how students at Denver Academy got the news that they were in for a snow day Wednesday. This comes from the school's headmaster, Mark Torigowski. I want to point out recently many of you have expressed disappointment that I don't do closure announcements by singing some clever lyrics to some song from Frozen. But that just ain't my thing. However, in order to step up my game a little, I will now read my very own Snow Day Haiku accompanied by an interpretive dance, which, of course, you won't be able to see. This beautiful day, wrecked by warnings of blizzard. Hold on to your hats. Thank you. Anyway, stay safe and warm tomorrow. Of course, we know that many schools remain closed today as we dig out from the storm. Okay, in our next half hour, we'll go from frozen conditions to the warmth of Colorado's sunshine laws. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan, and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. Last year, a funeral home in Montrose on the Western Slope was accused of selling body parts. Families would then get fake or swapped cremains. The news broke after an FBI raid. More information has been trickling out with the help of Colorado's open records laws. As our coverage of Sunshine Week continues, reporter Erin McIntyre of the Daily Sentinel joins us. She's been on this story from day one, and she's in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Erin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, what exactly is Sunset Mesa Funeral Directors and its owner, Megan Hess, accused of doing? So Megan Hess operated a nonprofit business under the same roof as her funeral business, Sunset Mesa, and this nonprofit was called Donor Services. And basically, hundreds of families say that she used that nonprofit to uh, very much make a profit selling their loved one's body parts without their permission. And they say that she returned dry concrete or what they believe are other people's cremains to them after promising to carry out their final wishes and that she made money from selling whole bodies or dismembered parts to various companies for research or uh, medical reasons or education. And was making money doing so. So did loved ones ever find out what happened to the remains of the deceased? Some of the, f- uh, good question. Some of the families are, are never going to know what happened. Um, the more recent cases, the FBI has been able to tell those families where they think the body parts may have gone or whole bodies have gone either here in the U.S. or internationally. Um, there are some records that the families have had access to, which indicate uh, that those body parts were sold to specific places, which are, are now being named in civil suits filed by the families as there's no criminal 
case right now, but there are uh, four civil lawsuits that have been filed. And just to be clear, the families, all of the families had no idea this was going on? Well, some families did agree to donate for a, a discounted uh, service, a discounted cremation. Uh, you know, uh, Megan had a habit of advertising a reduced price cremation, but most people, when they when they think of donation, they assume that we're talking about organ donation, uh, which is a highly regulated industry, um, and, and it has nothing to do with what we have going on here. What Sunset Mesa and Megan Hess are accused of doing is called body brokering, and it's also... Um, called non-transplant tissue banking. Uh, So uh, according to these civil complaints that we're able to see uh, through open records through the courts, uh, the companies that she did business with would order, you know, whole bodies, uh, specimens, torsos, heads used for this research, education, medical purposes. And some of these families may have agreed to donate, but others say they didn't give permission and they were charged full price. And now they have evidence from the FBI and some forensic testing that was conducted that they didn't receive their loved ones cremated remains at all um, and that the body parts were sold and they received uh, dry concrete, uh, kitty litter, things like that. So it looks like hundreds of families may have been affected by this body brokering scheme. Is there one story that really affected you? Obviously, you know, all the stories are are heartbreaking, but and I think that a conservative estimate would be, considering how long Sunset Mesa operated, that we're talking about hundreds of potential victims here. But I recently wrote about a woman named Julie Glynn. She lives in Durango, and her brother, Michael Good's final arrangements were handled by Sunset Mesa. Uh, When Michael died, he was only 57 years old. He'd been sick for a long time, had a lot of neurological problems. And and Julie, because their parents had passed away already, she was responsible for his final arrangements. And uh, she decided to have Sunset Mesa take care of her brother in 2017. When Julie heard about the story about Sunset Mesa, about the FBI raiding the business, she took the ashes of her brother to be tested at Colorado Mesa University. The FBI told her at that time they had evidence that her brother's head had been dismembered and embalmed and that his arms and legs were also cut off and sent to different places. Um, And, you know, her brother's wishes were to be cremated. And he specifically said he wanted his body kept whole and he wanted to go to heaven and, and be with their parents. Um, so what it really comes down to is what are people's wishes and what do we trust a funeral director to do when they take care of someone that we love? And we've already experienced a loss. We're in the worst time of our lives. Watching the toll this has taken on Julie and the other families involved has been really difficult. My goodness. So uh, I'm not sure. Did you say they, did, they tested the remains you said at Colorado Mesa? What did they turn out to be? Uh, Julie Glenn's brother's cremains were dry concrete, were dry concrete. but when, when she took the sample there to Colorado Mesa, the FBI uh, had a database of information, uh, records that had been kept, and they were able to uh, tell her at that time, even before the cremains were tested, that they had evidence that Michael's body parts had been sold even prior to testing what she'd been given. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And Uh, Maybe you know that uh, it's Sunshine Week when there is attention brought to transparency laws and what we can learn about how businesses or governments 
act as a result. And we're talking with Aaron McIntyre today of the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction, who's been able to learn a lot about an illegal body broker in Montrose. And do help us understand how transparency laws have have helped us get a fuller picture of this, Aaron. I think that uh, without the sunshine laws that we have in Colorado, which, I mean, we have a wide variety, uh, making sure we can see court records, making sure we can see administrative records from a tax-funded uh, government agencies, which is mostly what I use in this case. Um, I, I think we would have the story of how these families had this thing happen to them. They're shocked. They're terrified. We have the gory details, you know, Michael's head being sold, that sort of thing. But I don't think we would have a good idea of how a business like this could operate in Colorado. And I feel like the Sunshine Laws give us a really good picture into the regulatory environment that we have here in Colorado, um, which I don't know if most people know, we don't require funeral directors or morticians to have training. And we also don't give the Department of Regulatory Agencies, the, the agency that is in charge of regulating funeral homes in Colorado, we don't give them the power to inspect funeral homes, even when complaints are made. And we haven't required licensing for funeral directors since the early 1980s. Wait, there can never be an inspection of a funeral home in Colorado? Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that Dora's powers are purely administrative. They don't have the power to inspect. So there was an investigation open with Dora in the case of Sunset Mesa, but the investigator um, tried for years to get information out of the funeral home. And and ultimately, uh, the FBI is the one that showed up with a warrant uh, to search the facility and, and seize um, the evidence. Uh, that investigator accompanied the FBI when the raid happened a year ago in February. Um, and the records that we we were able to get through open records laws through the state agency, DORA, um, and, and the evidence that he documented help us understand what was found. Right. And for how long they had been trying to get a sense of what was going on there. So I understand the funeral director, Megan Hess, was selling cupcakes out of her house in Montrose, one of the flavors, Death by Chocolate. This story just is like stranger than fiction in some ways. But um, what, what's her defense here? Can we be in her shoes for a little bit? Well, you know, Megan hasn't really participated much in the court process. There have been four civil lawsuits that have been filed against Sunset Mesa. Only one of them is resolved. The The one with Julie Glynn uh, got resolved last month, and that's when the judge awarded Julie almost $470,000 in a default judgment. That was the maximum she could get. And part of that, I, I think, was uh, Megan didn't show up to the hearing. She didn't defend herself. She did file a motion prior to the judge's um, order um, claiming that she could defend herself if she could have the records back that the FBI had seized and that her rights were being violated. Um, The only other thing that I've heard that is a defense of hers is I know she has alleged there's a conspiracy with some other funeral businesses in the area against her and Uh, I've talked to some people who've worked closely with her in the past who said that she advocated uh, strongly for tissue donation, for body donation, and said that people were cremating miracles when they didn't donate. I'm grateful you shared your reporting with us. Thanks, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Erin McIntyre of the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction, covering the story of an illegal body broker in Montrose. Erin joined us for Sunshine Week 
which sheds light on government's transparency laws. For the poorest of the poor in Colorado, a simple ticket for a broken taillight or an open container of alcohol can lead to weeks in jail. That's because they can't afford even the lowest bonds. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry is tracking a bill to rewrite these rules, and she's going to walk us through this. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. How would this legislation change things? So uh, before I answer that question, I'll first tell you a little about the problem, sure. which is that um, local jails are packed. There are more than about th- there are more than thirteen thousand people sitting in them right now, and a lot of people are there. I mean, I've visited these places. A lot of people are there because they can't afford their cash bonds that are set, which means they're pretrial. They're not serving any sentence. They haven't been convicted of anything. And another point here is that anti-poverty advocates, even a lot of sheriffs who are in charge of jails, think it's kind of unfair that the criminal justice system punishes people who are too poor to post a bond, um, that it's this idea that it's not fair that two people charged with the same crime are treated differently, right? One sits in jail and one doesn't, depending on the ability to pay. Mm. So back to this bill, which prohibits local judges, county and municipal judges, from setting any cash bonds for really low-level petty offenses. And when you talk about low-level petty offenses, like what's the range of that? Really small. I mean, not any any offense, that, nothing that's attached to state law or misdemeanor. These are crimes enforced by counties and cities. And advocates call these crimes often associated with homelessness and poverty. You know, sleeping on a park bench, public urination, trespassing is a really big one, open container, violating an open container law, shoplifting less than $50. Um, Rebecca Wallace at the American Civil Liberties Union describes them as victimless. They are punished twice for their poverty, once when they are arrested associated with it, and the second time when they prove themselves so poor that they are part of a relatively small percentage of people who cannot scrape together a few hundred dollars to get out of jail. Wallace is one of the advocates pushing this bill at the legislature and hopes it solves that problem. How common is it that people end up stuck in jail in these situations? Well, more often than you'd think, there were 13,000 of these citations uh, cited last year just in county court. That figure does not include the more than 200 municipal courts around the state. Um, And I should mention that there are a few county and municipal charges that do include domestic violence and low-level assault. But the writers of this bill have made exemptions for those. So this bill does not include any violent offenses, even really low-level misdemeanors. Um, In reporting this story, I talked to Elizabeth Epps. She runs the Colorado Freedom Fund, which pays bonds up to $500 for poor people to get out of jail. She says she wants to work herself out of business with this bill. This is very literal. Sometimes I feel when we're having these conversations that people imagine folks are exaggerating about the sleeping on the bench. Like, no, that's what day in and day out saying that's what happened and that that's what they were arrested for. She gave me this example, actually, a couple days ago of this man who's been sitting in the Douglas County Jail since February 21st because of a busted taillight. He has a $500 bond. His partner can apparently afford 160 but not the full freight, so he's still in there. And one more thing I want to point out, because a lot of people have asked, you know, well, what about bail bondsmen? You know, don't they help in cases like this? Right. And the answer is no, because it's too small for them to really make any money. They don't usually bother with bails less than $1,000. I'm fascinated by this idea of the Colorado. Colorado Freedom Fund, which pays bond for folks. Um, Exactly. The the point of bail, though, is to make sure people follow through with the consequences of their citations, you know, to pay a fine or show up in court. If the state does away with bail in these cases, what's to keep people from 
just ignoring their court dates? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, you know, and cash bail has been studied really pretty in depth nationally in the last few years. It's kind of a trend right now. None of the data really shows that cash bail works better than other things at getting people back to court. You know, maybe using using text messages or uh, calling them or sending them a reminder works just as well, actually even better. So the same advocates who are trying to do away with the small dollar bail are also pushing for this expanded program to remind people of their court dates. And that's actually another bill in the legislature right now. Are there other objections to this legislation? Well, there are some. Um, Some of the local control advocates are worried that any mandate that sort of bans judges from taking certain actions, you know, violates, um, you know, judicial discretion and also home rule, you know, that cities and counties pay these judges and judges should be able to sort of do what they want. Hmm. Here's Megan Dollar. She works at the Colorado Municipal League. The other concern with the legislation is uh, the lack of judicial discretion. And we do believe that there are some instances where judges should be able to have the flexibility to make different determinations uh, if they believe that's correct in that case. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but many of the people sitting in jail are there on failure to appears, which means they missed a court date. Um, And so if you had, let's say you get arrested for a, or you get a a citation for public urination, you get a ticket and it says come to court on March 20th and you're homeless and you don't come to court on March 20th, that means that will spark a warrant for your arrest. Um, So then you can get picked up and then you're sitting in jail for this failure to appear. Um, And a lot of municipal judges in past reporting I've done on this are worried that people who have eight or nine failure to appears in court should be able to, they should be able to hold them in jail because there needs to be some punishment. Um, This bill does ban that. So you can still get arrested for a failure to appear, but you would not be able to be held in jail on a cash bond on a failure to appear. But I suppose this underscores the importance of reminding people of their court dates. Exactly. That, that could be a game changer. Allison, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, she's tracking a bill at the state capitol to eliminate cash bail for people who commit small municipal level infractions. America's national parks were born out of concern that the most majestic landscapes would be overtaken by development. A new children's book crisscrosses the parks from Yosemite to the Everglades. It includes maps and colorful illustrations of the parks and their plants and animals. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaks with author Kate Sieber, who lives in Durango. Hi, Kate. Hi, Andrea. This book has the look of a classic hardback children's book from the 1950s or 60s, I think. And there's an illustration on the cover of a dad and daughter looking out at a mountain view at one of the nation's parks. And at the very beginning, you talk about how national parks got started. What prompted the idea? So as uh, the West was getting more developed in the 1800s, people started to worry that some of the most majestic landscapes would be uh, would be overtaken with houses and people. And um, so they started to think that it would be a good idea to set some land aside. But it wasn't until 1872 that Congress and Ulysses S. Grant uh, set aside Yellowstone. Um, the funny thing is, is that they designated this park but allocated no funding. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, which was a problem. So as you can imagine, with no rangers and no uh, superintendent, people came and 
fished out the streams and uh, shot the wildlife and even took home uh, geyser rock as souvenirs. So the army came in to actually protect the animals and um, eventually other parks were born and the park service itself was born and now there are 61 national parks across the country. Wow. You start with parks in the eastern U.S. You move west. Um, In the east, you feature parks um, in the north like Acadia and Maine down to the Everglades in Florida. And I love the contrast between the cold waters of New England and the swampy waterlands of the South. Um, Also in the East, you have a section on the Great Smoky Mountains. That's apparently the most popular national park in the country. What is it about the Smokies that attracts so many people? I think part of it is that it's just close to some big uh, population centers. And so it's one of the more accessible parks. But, of course, it has incredible wonders in it. Um, It's known for its sort of bluish fog that um, sort of moves around the mountains. Um, It has tons of bears. It has more than 30 species of salamanders. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite parts of that park is the synchronous fireflies, so the lightning bugs that in May and June light up the forest and flashes all together. That must be beautiful. People come from all over to see it. Yeah. So more than 11 million people visited the Great Smoky Mountains uh, last year, the national park, and that's nearly twice the number that visited the second most popular park, the Grand Canyon. Um, The first national park, as you said, was Yellowstone. The book has illustrations of the animals in the park, grizzly bears, elk, and lynx, um, also the plants and trees found there. But you also focus on the park's unique geothermal features. Talk about those. They're so endlessly fascinating for kids um, and adults, too. Indeed. When I visited, I met some people who were camped out in lawn chairs waiting for the more rare geysers to erupt, and they called themselves uh, geyser gazers. Uh-huh. Try to say that three times <laughs> fast. <laughs> and um, yeah, there are more than 10,000 geothermal features in Yellowstone. Um, so there are geysers, there are mud pots, there are these springs that have um, rainbow hues from the heat-loving bacteria in them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just an incredible array. And I think as far as geysers, there's something so compelling about, you know, not knowing when they might erupt. You know, of course, there are some that, like Old Faithful, that we know when they're going to erupt. And there are others that don't erupt in decades. And it's just so fun to think that you could be lucky enough to see them. So you live in Durango and have a national park right near you, Mesa Verde. It's one of the parks you feature in the book um, with its incredible cliff dwellings where people lived uh, centuries ago. I think much of the park's appeal is that you can really imagine how people lived when you visit it. Um, For those who haven't been there, talk about the uniqueness of Mesa Verde. So first of all, when you're driving there, it's incredibly beautiful. Just wind up onto this mesa and to to just see the land around you. It feels like a little kingdom in a sense. And when you're walking through these ancient stone ruins, I mean, it is not at all hard to imagine what life might have been like there. You can see half-eaten corn cobs lying in the sand. You can see the charcoal from the fires that went out centuries ago. Um, you can see the pot shards that still remain. And, you know, for me, I think it's um, it makes it feel like you're closer to these people. And even if they aren't your direct ancestors, you know, it feels like in a sense that you're connected to their humanity. We should say that you worked on the book with an illustrator, Chris Turnham. You'd never met him, and the illustrations are just beautiful. 
What was one of the most surprising things you learned while you were working on this book? Um, I think some of the surprising things that I learned had to do with what plants and animals do to survive. Um, one of the most fun things I learned was um, the shorthorned lizard, which lives in the American Southwest. Um, in order to defend itself against predators, it can uh, double its size, puff up. It can change colors and shoot blood out of its eyes. Wow. <laughs> so, um, And you haven't been to all of the country's uh, national parks. I think there are 59, but you've been to a lot of them. Do you have a favorite one? You know, Grand Canyon holds a special place in my heart. Um, there are so many amazing parks, but I just feel such a connection to that one. And, you know, um, it's it's so beautiful, and the terrain is so terrifying to navigate in certain ways, both the river and also on foot. Um, and that elixir, it just um, it just creates this sense of awe. Kate, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I have to ask Andrea, have you seen the synchronous fireflies? I have never. I haven't either. I have to see these. And you've seen them. I haven't, actually. You haven't seen them? No. Okay, we all have to make a trip to see the synchronous fireflies. That's Kate Sieber of Durango. She's written National Parks of the USA with illustrations by Chris Turnham. Sieber also reports for Outside Magazine. She lives in Durango and joined my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Finally today, there's plenty of winter left, but summer music festivals will be here before we know it. At least we hope. The Seven Peaks Music Festival just announced its lineup for Labor Day weekend. The country and bluegrass event was created last year by Nashville star Dirks Bentley, who told us how he chose Buena Vista as its location. Well, we've been talking about doing this uh, festival for a long time. If you're going to do a festival in Colorado, you want it to feel like you're in the Rockies, and doing it in Denver just didn't really feel like that. It's a big city, and the mountains are pretty far away. And then um, this location in Buena Vista came up, came to VV, and uh, it's just the perfect location. You know, these seven 14,000-foot mountains uh, you know, visible from the festival site, and great town, great people. Everyone really wanted to work with us, and was really excited about having a, you know country music come into the, to the area. And Again, it all goes back to me just trying to find more ways to spend more time in Colorado. This year's lineup includes Bentley himself, plus Luke Bryan, Marin Morris, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and Steep Canyon Rangers. Here's that group. They hail from North Carolina. And this is their song inspired by Colorado, Take the Wheel. Lady Colorado, she treats me so good, treats me so good, treats me so good. Lady Colorado, she treats me so good, oh, I miss her so. Take the wheel, it's spinning out of control. Canyon Rangers, one of the headlining artists this year at the Seven Peaks Music Festival. It returns to Buena Vista, Colorado, Labor Day weekend. Hope you made it through the storm all right. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters. And the newsroom is at CPR News. This is Colorado Public Radio. I need some place to hide me away, to hide me away. 
I need some place to hide me away long until the break of day. So take the 